and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's on page 953 in these Bibles in the pews. I wanted to, uh, well, for those that are uh, newcomers here, we've been off and on for the past few months going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, this is where I left off a few weeks ago. And I wanted to cover one more sermon in 1 Corinthians before we get into the Christmas season and the sermons uh, go in that direction. But providentially, it also fits this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 7, fit, uh, are very fitting for the fact that today we're going to install new classes of session members and diaconate members at the end of our service. Uh, so I did not plan it that way, but providentially it, it worked out well that that's what we're covering. Um, just a brief word of review. 1 Corinthians was a church, uh, was a letter written to a church in the city of Corinth, a, a very uh, metropolitan area in the Apostle Paul's day there in the first century. He had planted a church there. He had led many of these people personally to Christ. And then he stayed 18 months getting them established in their faith. And then he moved on, as was his pattern since he was a missionary, and he went to the city of Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus, a, a letter arrives at least one, uh, and it, in that letter it describes some divisions that are taking place back in the church in Corinth, and it also asks a lot of questions about some issues that, Lord willing, we'll come to later in the book. So the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that we've covered, he has been dealing with, in a very gentle way, these divisions, and they were personality-driven, which is no surprise. Most divisions in a church or anywhere else typically are personality-driven. And there were some in, the, in this congregation, these new converts, they'd been con believers less than, you know, about three years probably, and they were uh, saying, well, I, I follow Paul, and others were saying, well, I follow Apollos, who was a great um, uh, apologist, a defender of the Christian faith. Uh, I follow Cephas, that is Peter. And of course there was the very spiritual group that said, I, I follow Christ, or we follow Christ. So the congregation, the church in Corinth, was divided uh, over these personalities. And here in chapter 4, Paul's going to answer the question, since he's already said you shouldn't be divided, now he's going to say, here's how you should view us. Here's how you should view spiritual leadership, spiritual leaders in a church. With that in mind, follow along, if you will, as I begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer. 
Our Father, we thank you that the church is not a creation uh, of men and women. It's, it's, it's your creation. It's the body of Christ on earth. It's the temple of Christ. And we pray for guidance now as we look into your word, that you'd use it to teach, to rebuke, to train in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler was the president of Columbia University. And there's a uh, paraphrase quotation that's often attributed to him, and that is that he said you could divide the world into three types of people. Uh, there's the type that makes things happen, there are those who watch things happen, and then there, the last type, are those who go, what happened? <laughs> and he said that leaders have to be those who make things happen, not just watch or question what did happen. Here, as I mentioned to you, the Apostle Paul is telling us and them how to view spiritual leadership. They had put these men on a pedestal. They had divided over their, their giftedness or, or what they saw as or who was more important. And Paul says it shouldn't be that way at all. He's speaking about himself. Uh, but he says, here's how you should view us, and that is in two ways. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. That's how you should view spiritual leadership. Servants not of yourselves, not of the church, but of Christ. Now, it's interesting the word that he uses for servant, and if you've, you've read much of the New Testament, you know sometimes there are various phrases like bond servant or bond slave. There's various types of servants. Here is the word for under rower. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the ancient ships, at least in Paul's day, uh, not only had sails, but they had oarsmen. And a smaller ship would have one level of oarsmen that would, would provide the power for the boat. And then medium-sized ships would have two levels. And then the largest vessels had three levels of oarsmen. And the lowest level serving in that capacity was called an under rower. That's the word the Apostle Paul uses. We are under rowers. We are servants of Christ. Peter has his hand to the oar. Apollos has his hand to the oar. I have my hand to the oar. That's what he's saying. So it's not an exalting. It's not, don't, don't put us on a pedestal, he's saying. But see us as servants, not your servants, but servants of Christ. Of course, that model of leadership flies in the face of what so many of us are taught in, with secular models of leadership, um, where you rule with authority and the person at the top receives all these benefits or so forth. Christ said, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. The second word he uses is that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And we don't use the term steward often today. But we use a, our term for the same thing as manager. And Jesus told a number of parables that involved uh, landowners and stewards. The landowner owned the estate, owned the fields, the crop belonged to him and his family, but he would hire a steward who would oversee all the operations. He was the COO, and he would see to the, uh, the management of the resources, and all. but it belonged to the owner. The steward did not own it. But the steward was responsible to see that it was used right. So you're thinking, how does that have to do with leaders in the church or these early uh, apostles like Paul, these early church planters? Well, he's saying, we are managers. You, the church, belong to Christ. You're his field. You belong to him. We are just 
those who are to build on that. We are to, to resource you to do his work. So that's how you should view spiritual leadership as servants of God and as stewards of what? Of the mysteries of God. Well, that's the gospel. That's, he's addressed that earlier in the, I think, chapter 1, where the things that were hidden, these prophecies foretelling of the Redeemer that were told for hundreds of years before Christ was born and then about his life and his death and his resurrection. Now we know that. That mystery has been revealed to us. So they were managers also of the message of God, of the Word of God. We don't own it. I don't own it. I don't write it, but I am to manage it in that to give it out to others. So what do you look for then in these people? We tend to look for um, eloquence and giftedness and charisma, uh, but that's not what he chooses. He says what you should pick here is faithfulness. Faithfulness is what should be looked for. Verse 2 underlines this. This is what God honors. Uh, last week, if you were here, we went over the qualities, the character traits that should be true in a, uh, a man who is to be an overseer, an elder in God's church, and, uh, and almost all of those applies to deacons as well. But then what should they do? Well, first, they should be faithful, um, keep promises, steady, loyal. This person can be counted on. That's what Paul says, if you want to evaluate us, if you want to evaluate me and Peter, Cephas, and Apollos, uh, don't do it based on these human standards. Do it based on faithfulness. Are we being faithful to what God has called us to do as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God? Stories abound of church leaders who've committed flagrant or, and public sins that have harmed the flocks and harmed uh, even the name of the church itself. But one of the best helps, and this is what I appreciate so much about our form of government in the Presbyterian Church. By the way, the word Presbyterian just means rule by elder. That's what it means, rule by elder. Uh, one of the best things about it is one of the easiest ways to be faithful is to surround yourself with others who are faithful. And they kind of carry you along with the momentum. And we have a plurality of elders. That's, that's uh, essential to our form of government, which I am very, very grateful for. Uh, so, but we tend, we tend, uh, we being especially Protestants in the United States today, we focus on externals for how we evaluate whether ministry is successful. Uh, numbers is, is, is perhaps the biggest. Budgets, uh, buildings, uh, uh, noses, nickels, and noise, as I heard one person say once. Uh, and yet we're fickle about the way we evaluate it on theology. For example, here's this small liberal church, and I'm using the term liberal not to mean generous, but they hold a liberal theology. They don't believe in the Bible. The whole church is centered around other things. The Bible is just really ignored. And so here's about 30 people that meet at this church, and, and here drives by someone like me and goes, <laughs> you know, it only goes to show. If you don't give people the truth, they don't want, they're not going to come. That's why you've got that small group. Well, here's this, this large, um, no, here's this smaller, even same size, uh, Bible-centered church. And they teach the truth and teach that Christ is the only way to God and we can't get to God by our good works. And there's only about 30 people there. And we go, you know, it only goes to show. 
If you preach the truth, people don't want to hear it. Here's this real large liberal church. thousand people are there. It's a social event. It's, uh, it's the place to see and be seen. It's a country club with a steeple on it. And, and they, they go, and people go, and there's no gospel. There's no Bible-centered preaching or, or message of Christ. And, and we look at these huge crowds and go, you know, it only goes to show. If you tell people what they want to hear, they're going to go there. And now here's this large evangelical church, a Protestant. I can't use the term evangelical anymore. It's become politicized, right? Here, Bible-believing church. And they, they teach the truth. They treat, preach the gospel and believe the gospel. And there's a thousand people there. And you go, you know, it only goes to show. If you give people the truth, they'll come. We, we don't have any standards. Well, the standards should be faithfulness for how we evaluate. And that's what Paul invited, rather than focusing on the externals. Uh, I'm going to move on. I'm kind of giving you about half of what I did at first service, so count your blessings. Verses, uh, verses 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, he goes on, and he had said, what is required of stewards is found faithful. But with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Uh, so he talks now about self-examination. And he says there's self-examination, there's examination by others, and then there's examination by the Lord. And we all live with this. Well, what did he say about how they viewed him? He said it's a concern, but it is a very small thing. You'd almost think that's an insult. If I came up to you and said, you know, what you think of me, it's just a small thing. And that's what he's saying. Paul did not live for their praise. He didn't live for the approval of others. How could he do that and be bold to go into places and take the gospel for the first time? Listen, if, you're, if any of these men becoming, uh, uh, being elders and deacons, if, you're, if they're afraid to be shot at, it's not, church leadership is not the place to be. Because if you or I do anything, I mean, people just have opinions and often strong opinions one way or the other about the same action. And that was certainly Paul's experience. Some wanted to exalt him, some wanted to criticize him. And he says, it's really a small thing what you think of me. Uh, he lived by what Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare. If we're always concerned about what someone else thinks, we, we're always capable of being tripped up. The second is self-examination, the second part of verse 3. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Whoa. Uh, now, I did a double take, and I, I knew that phrase was going to need some explaining when I was studying this, because that sounds kind of conceited, as though I don't even examine myself. I don't even look at my own life. We know that's not what he meant because of places like Romans 7, where he tells about the tension he lives with, with the sin that I don't want to do and the good that I do want to do. And he called himself the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles. And he said that before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should examine ourselves. So what did he mean? I think what he mean, meant was that he knew that any, his own self-examination would not be accurate. It's the Lord who is, is, gives an accurate examination. Let me explain more. I've heard it said that each of us, in a sense, there are three of each of us. There's the person you think you are, there's the person other people think you are, and there's the person God knows you are. 
And probably each of those three are very, very different. Therefore, he, what he, I believe what Paul is saying is he leaves the act of judging up to God. This is not to say he wishes to forego examination. Uh, but he just knows that the only accurate examination will not come from them and not even from him own self, his own self, but it will come from God. And I, I, mentioned, I did mention this at the first service. He says about God's examination, he'll bring what is in darkness to light, even the motives of the heart, the purposes of the heart. I don't think, in my personal opinion, I don't know if any of us are capable of knowing our motives for everything we do. They are layers upon layers. There is sin covered by sin, covered by sin. And I gave the example. Whether you believe it or not, I really work hard on sermons. And if you had told me years ago it was going to be as difficult now as it was then, I wouldn't have believed it. But if you were to say, why do you do that? Someone who doesn't know me might say, well, he loves the word of God. Some might say, well, he's a faithful pastor, preacher. I don't want to be embarrassed. I've got a pretty good job. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm not living a double life. Why? Is it because I fear God and and love her that much? Maybe. Maybe I don't want to get fired. And I could ruin my life in about five minutes. I really could. I'm not not trying to be funny. I'm really not. I'm just thinking if you start backing up from your actions and really begin to look at your motives... I think we'll find that our motives are not pure in most things, even that look, may even look godly, may even look like good deeds done for the wrong reasons. What Paul is saying is, I don't really care much what you think about me, your judgment. I think a little bit about it, but not much. I don't really even look to my own judgment of myself, but I look to the Lord's examination. He is the one who matters. He is the one because he is the only one that can give an accurate examination. So what does he do? He gives us some questions. He says we should leave the judgment and criticism with the Lord. And then, though, he gives, well, before I give you the questions, I want you to look at the phrase, therefore, um, I'm at verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He's not negative. We typically think, ooh, God's going to give an, exact, an accurate examination. That's a terrifying thought. Well, it wasn't terrifying to Paul. He's saying, then God will give commendation. He will reward those. We'll be glad. There'll be no uh, misunderstandings. I won't have to explain why I did what I did. Then he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another to be uh, to, to produce factions in the church to have divisions that are personality centered he's saying is really an issue of pride you're puffed up we don't use that term we say you're full of yourself your, your own self-centeredness is so big you're like a like a balloon that's blowing up. It's so puffed up with yourself. Now, normally, if, if I were to say, uh, how do you know if a person's prideful or not? We typically think, well, there's an, an arrogant attitude or there's a, just a, an, a selfishness a, about the person. 
I was reading the other day and it said that there's an arrogant pride and there's a fearful pride. And some of us may not look arrogantly prideful, but I want you to listen for a moment when I describe what it means to be fearfully prideful. Here are some characteristics of arrogant pride. This is a person who tries to be in control in all situations. He sees or she sees all issues as black and white, and people are either for them or against them. They are threatened by people with legitimate differences. An arrogant, prideful person is insensitive to the feelings of others. An arrogantly prideful person sees others who are gifted and competent as competition rather than partners. This person lacks self-awareness. He is unable to see his or her own sins. And an arrogantly prideful person longs to be respected by everyone. They don't desire necessarily to be liked by people. They want to be respected. Now, what is a fearfully prideful person? Well, this is a person often is hesitant to change out of fear. Sees all issues as gray. This person's not willing to fight about anything. But it's still pride. It's still self-centeredness. Overly sensitive to the feelings of others. The, the arrogantly prideful person may not care about the feelings of others at all. The fearfully prideful person is overly sensitive. They, they rule their life. They guide their life by how other people see them. This person lacks self-confidence and is paralyzed by awareness of his own sins and errors and faults. And whereas the arrogantly prideful person longs to be respected by everyone, the fearfully prideful person longs to be liked by everyone. I'll not ask for a show of hands as to which of the two we all fit in, but perhaps we all fit somewhere. And Paul, in a gentle way, is saying, your pride is what is leading to these divisions. So what's the correction? And I'll close with three questions. I'll come near to closing with three questions. Very simple in verse 7. Here are the questions. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, not re and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This helps all of us in the area of pride. Uh, who sees anything different in you? He's saying, are you any different from the church that's in Philippi or that I'm planting in Ephesus or the church in Rome? No, they don't see you as different. Why do you think you've arrived? That's, that was their thinking. They had a high view of themselves as a church. Then he says, what you have that you did not receive. We owe everything to God and his providence. We enjoy spiritual and physical blessings. You were born, obviously, those here, to where you and I have great privileges in God's providence, but we very easily could have been born in a primitive tribe in Papua New Guinea. Whatever gifts, talents, expertise, education, opportunities you have are a gift from God. Were you raised in a Christian home? You could have been born as an AIDS baby to a street walker in a large metropolitan city. The answer is, what, when he says, what do you have you did not receive? The answer is nothing. And third, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Okay, now I'll close. I'll close with this. Because this Wednesday, I hope you know, is the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. And I want to tell you about one man who is an example of servitude and who cared for others. I have no idea whether this man was a Christian, but it's a great example of faithfulness. 
when the bombs were dropped on the ships on that Sunday morning on December 7th of 1941, uh, on the other side of Ford, Ford Island was a very old battleship, the battleship Utah, and it had been converted into a target ship. And on that ship was the chief water tender named Peter Tomich. Now, a water tender was the person with responsibility to handle the water in the boilers, and there was an intricate network of pipes and gauges, and these crisscrossed the interior of the engine room, and the water tender had to make sure that the balance of water and steam and so forth was correct or it could explode and be fatal to many all the crew who would be in the engine room. Uh, so it was a steady, he had to watch this continually. It was not automated. Peter Tomich immigrated to the United States in his teens from the country of Austria, and he enlisted in the Navy, and he had a natural ability in the area of machinery, so he advanced quickly up through the ranks and became chief water tender. And he was assigned to the Utah. He had no family members, and so he didn't mind putting in the long hours that were necessary with that job. It didn't bother him. The Navy was his home. The other sailors were his family. And so when the Utah was hit that Sunday morning by those attack planes, Tomich knew that danger was imminent because he saw water seeping into the engineering plant, and he had to secure the boilers to keep everything from exploding. And he also knew that death was going to be likely for anyone left in that room. So he made the decision and he yelled for all the other crew to get out and to get topside, which they did because the crew was his family and he would save them and attempt to keep the boilers from exploding. And as the last of the crew scrambled up the ladders to safety, they said they saw Peter Tomich calmly turning valves, setting gauges, opening petcocks, and that would be the last anyone saw of him. And because of his action, no explosion did take place in the boilers. Many lives were saved, and he was awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. And since no relative of Peter Tomich could be found, uh, his medal, I'm told, rests today in, as part of the permanent memorial for the Utah at the Utah State Capitol building, honoring the men who lost their lives above the Utah. Now, that is an example of, of servitude. That's an under-rower. Uh, that's an example of faithfulness uh, to his call uh, there on behalf of others. We should be faithful in these men coming forward in a moment as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your church as was prayed before that you've